When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Morning, Chris. Hello, Kim. Let us talk about the loss of smell, which seems to be officially a symptom. Why? Yeah, very interesting this, because if you cast your mind back about a month or so, people said there appeared to be this association between smell loss and people saying they then got tested and they were positive for coronavirus. And people said, do you think there could be anything in it? And other people, me included, said, well, these viruses do grow in the nose and throat. When when you get a viral infection in the nose and throat, one of the places that gets impacted could be the olfactory epithelium. This is the lining of tissue at the top of the nose where dangling down are these fine sprays of nerve endings which provide you with your sense of smell and because most of what we call taste is actually smell, therefore taste as well. And when you get an infection that damages those nerve fibres or which causes lots of mucus and inflammation to coat the nerve fibres so the smell molecules can't get access to them, then you can't smell and taste things anymore. And so it's pretty common to lose your sense of smell and taste when you have any kind of upper respiratory infection. But people were really emphatic. They were saying, no, I really did profoundly lose my sense of smell and taste, and then I got diagnosed with coronavirus. Well, researchers not far from where I am at um, the Sanger Institute, where about a third of the human genome was sequenced about 20 years ago at the Sanger Institute, this is a group uh, Sarah Teichman and her colleagues have actually taken this on and they have found that there is a very good biochemical reason why people, at least half the time, get this symptom. They have found that the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, which is the receptor that the virus goes for on cells, in other words, it clings onto cells that have got that particular marker on their surface, that marker is quite strongly expressed in the very cells, in the very part of your nose and throat, that give you your sense of smell and taste alongside another very important molecule the cells ooze out this protein cutting enzyme protease and this is a useful component to have sitting there because when the virus comes along that protease goes snip and it cuts a very specific part of the protein on the surface of the virus disclosing the active part of the receptor it's almost like pulling the pin on a hand grenade so these cells that do your sense of smell and taste they're like the the primed perfect target and they serve up exactly what the virus is looking for the receptor it needs to grab hold of to get it into the cell and the protease that's needed to pull the pin out and prime the thing and when the virus goes in of course it damages that tissue temporarily robbing people of their sense of smell and taste that very long name that you gave, uh, more commonly known as ACE2 receptor, correct? Mm, that's right, ACE2. All right, because uh, a number of people have asked questions about that, so that's interesting. Um, how long would the sense of smell and taste go for? Do we know? Well, we don't know exactly, but on average, most people recover and then they from coronavirus symptoms, and then within a week or two, they get their sense of smell and taste back again and that's because the inflammation goes down the mucus production that accompanies inflammation goes away and also this group of cells that give you your sense of smell and taste they're quite special because they come down out of a structure called the olfactory bulb which is part of one of your cranial nerves it actually runs along the underside of your brain and 
at the end of that is this blob called an olfactory bulb. And in there are connections made between the cells that are going to send smell signals to your brain and the actual nerves that go down into your nose. And because these nerves that go down into your nose are frequently damaged by viruses and other chemicals and bad things you breathe in, they naturally regenerate quite well. So they can grow and reconnect from the olfactory epithelium back up into this cranial nerve in your brain. But that regrowth does take a little while to happen, which is why you're robbed of your sense of smell for for usually a couple of weeks and then things begin to get better again. But the good news is because this tissue is, is so well evolved to do that, it does recover. Somebody asked um, about the role of ACE2 receptors and how blood pressure medication ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers could potentially lessen COVID-19 symptoms and what research is being done. Yeah. Well, actually, really interesting. The New England Journal of Medicine have literally just this week published a paper on this very thing, looking at this. And just for the reassurance of anyone who's taking blood pressure medications that target this particular blood pressure uh, regulating system, there is no link between, it turns out from this paper, looking at many thousands of people, between people who take these drugs to control their blood pressure and the chances of developing severe COVID disease. Uh, They've actually looked at this in the States and recruited lots and lots of people and they can't show any kind of uh, strong association. So that's very reassuring. The reason people uh, thought about this initially is that you have this way of regulating your blood pressure. It's the renin aldosterone angiotensin system. And what happens is that you have this molecule which uh, converts a precursor molecule into this other molecule called angiotensin. And angiotensin gets converted into a more active form, angiotensin 2, and this goes round in your bloodstream and it binds onto receptors on blood vessels and it has the effect of making them constrict. And this increases your blood pressure. It also engages a, another circuit biochemical system which has a longer term regulation of your blood pressure by reabsorbing sodium into the body and that increases the amount of blood in blood vessels so it has the effect of constricting blood vessels and filling them up with water because the water goes where the salt goes and this is a a very well understood system and so one way to control high blood pressure is you can give drugs that stop you producing that angiotensin 2 the active form of of the chemical and that's the ACE inhibitor or you can give drugs that block the receptor it binds onto, so that even though you're making that stuff, the cells effectively are blinded to the signal, they don't respond. Either way, your blood pressure comes down. Now, to stop angiotensin 2 doing what it does, you've got this other enzyme, angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, which breaks it down and ends its effect, and it's very important for regulating blood pressure. And so people then thought, well, if the coronavirus is targeting that, does that mean that any drugs that interfere with this renin angiotensin aldosterone system that regulates blood pressure, will they in turn have an impact uh, on the likelihood of getting severe disease? And that's why these researchers in America have looked at this and they can reassure people there doesn't appear to be any relationship. And so people should carry on taking their blood pressure medication uh, if they're taking one of those pills because it's not going to affect your, your disease risk at all. The um, the symptoms seem to be confusing people and we talked last week about how an awful lot of anecdotal evidence throws up confusion about symptoms, maybe they're relevant, maybe they're not. The CDC lists fever as the number one symptom of COVID-19, 
But now the Journal of American Medicine uh, Medical Association shows 70% of patients sick enough to be admitted to the hospital system, this is in New York State, did not have a fever. What could account for that? Well, when we first started studying this, the people we knew had it, had fevers. And so people said, well, that must be one of the defining features, that and a cough. And what we are learning now as we are testing more people and we're going and testing more people without symptoms is that the repertoire of symptoms that this presents with is much broader than people thought originally. We've talked about one of the symptoms, which is a more vague symptom and less specific for the disorder, the loss of smell and taste. But that's another one that's been added. Alongside it include things like headache, fatigue, nausea, diarrhoea, vomiting. So those other things also we're now realising are all part of the same symptom complex. And some people have some of them, some have all of them. Some people, it appear, have none of them, or at least extremely mild ones that only with careful probing do you elicit. So this is the really interesting thing about this disease. It doesn't just present as one a sort of one-trick pony. It presents in many different ways, and that's probably why it makes people ill over such a broad spectrum from trivially ill to uh, life-threateningly ill because it's producing such a range of different effects in different tissues at different times in different people in different ways and it's really hard to nail it down and the good thing is that now we're onto this of course people are beginning to gather data like it's going out of fashion and we're, we're never going to have a disease that's probably as so thoroughly well studied in such a short time as this one. We're not talking about different strains here Chris we're talking about COVID-19 the one strain that produces all these different symptoms in reaction to different people's systems. Yeah, there's been quite a bit of misinformation about strains and mutation and all this. And, and in fact, it's caused a bit of consternation and a bit of confusion for people. The evidence that we have by looking at the genome of this virus from the minute it emerged in China in uh, November, December time and comparing that genome with what we have today, this virus is evolving very slowly. It's changing its genetic code at the rate of only about two genetic letters every month. So it's so far accrued about 12 changes in its genome code. And you think, well, that, that might be really important. That sounds like quite a lot. Well, it's not because the genome code of coronavirus is about 30,000 genetic letters long. So it's changed only a tiny number of them. And virologists and molecular biologists are agreed that the changes that appear to be cropping up in there are pretty trivial and they're not making major what we call phenotypic changes to the way the virus behaves, grows or makes us unwell. So broadly speaking it's the same virus that's attacking people now as was attacking people when it first emerged in China back in uh, November, December time. So we, we don't think that there are multiple strains that have different behaviours going around. Uh, the debate about whether children could spread it. We were told first of all that children didn't get it and they tended not to spread it. Uh, now, apparently, it seems that children can spread it and indeed are as likely to spread it as adults are. Yeah, I mean, I said this on your programme previously. I said I was sceptical of this because it just doesn't mm. fit. The thing is that children don't go through some bizarre metamorphosis to turn into an adult. I mean, behaviourally, they appear to, and um, parents will, will agree with that thoroughly. But um, in terms of their biochemistry, they don't. And um, children turn into adults. They work the same way when they're children as when they're adults. So if you're a vulnerable adult, you're a vulnerable kid and vice versa. You might get slightly more severe symptoms but you're still going to get infected. And if you've got symptoms, you're sure as hell going to be 
infectious and it's possible that you might have very mild symptoms you're still potentially going to be infectious because you're growing the virus in the same way as an adult does and therefore you're probably churning out virus in the same way as an adult onto your airway surfaces and therefore you can spray that out spit that out and spread it all over everybody else so uh, i was skeptical when um, initially someone said that and i don't know really why they said that and um, and i speculated that actually we probably with more uh, investigation would probably find that there wasn't a lot of difference and i think people are now acknowledging that there isn't a lot of difference on the subject of children then what's kawasaki disease i remember years ago there was a lot of talk about that seemed to die out of the headlines Mm. now it's back and there's some link it is said between kawasaki disease and covid19 yes well kawasaki disease is rare for a start very few people ever see this i think i've seen one one case one child with something that could have been this when i was at medical school doing pediatrics which is how i happened to see it because everyone flocked to it like a sort of medical mecca because <laughs> you're never going to see this again in your career come and see this case of of kawasaki disease this is a, a bizarre inflammatory condition it's some kind of dysregulation of our immune response and we don't know what causes it we don't know who gets it we we don't really understand it that well and because it hasn't been possible to study it that well because not many people have it but generally what you see is a child will present with a very high fever and that fever doesn't respond to the normal antipyretics temperature lowering drugs like paracetamol in the same way a normal fever would seems to be a bit of a resistant fever they get swollen lymph glands and evidence that they've got their immune system causing inflammation in blood vessels and you can get actually aneurysms dilatation swellings in your arteries around your heart you get coronary um, aneurysms which is extremely unusual and rare for that ever to happen normally and the other really bizarre feature is that you get peeling of the skin on the digits fingers and toes go peel and very dramatic and it looks like in a, in a subset of children who catch this coronavirus infection, there appears to be a manifestation like this occurring. Now, um, in fact, the, the um, NHS just sent round a warning to doctors this week to be on the lookout for this because there have been some cases where we've seen this sort of manifestation. We don't know why this is happening. And one speculation, I don't know how true it is, I guess we're going to find out as we get more cases, is it might not be coronavirus working in isolation they're speculating perhaps it has a sidekick perhaps there's another microbe there which if you catch both at the same time perhaps it produces this very florid uh, sort of version of kawasaki disease or it might just be that this is you as an individual your reaction the way your body works your genetic makeup reacting to your coronavirus infection and it produces that dramatic side effect in some people We, we just don't know at the moment Um, The top health expert in the United States, Anthony Fauci, now appears to be saying that remdesivir could be a good treatment for COVID-19. This seems to contradict results that came from elsewhere about remdesivir. What do you think? Well, um, there are a number of bits of data to go on here. Remdesivir was originally produced as an experimental drug during the Ebola era. Uh, about five years ago and the way it works is that it looks like one of the genetic letters that goes into dna and rna and when you give it to a person 
their cells take it up and you've got a pool of this stuff sitting in the cell and when a virus tries to grow in the cell it mistakes the real genetic letter that it should be adding to its growing genetic code when it's making more copies of its genome and it accidentally chucks in one of these remdesivir molecules which has been activated by the bio- any virus well we don't know Um, But certainly some viruses are more prone to doing this than others. And when it accidentally inserts this letter into its genetic code, this genetic letter then mutates the code and it makes the DNA or RNA, depending, stop growing. And so it it can't extend the copy of the genetic information and it also can distort the message. And in in that way, it breaks the virus. It basically rips up the instruction manual. So when the virus then tries to boot itself up, it's got a broken genome. It's rather like you buying a computer and the operating system's corrupted. The computer won't boot, so the virus is dud. And they made it for Ebola, and unfortunately it wasn't found to be very useful for Ebola. But because this drug appears to be um, a, a substrate for viruses to use in their genetic code, then someone thought, well, let's try this with coronavirus and they've been doing some trials and in initially in the dish it seemed to show that it would cut down the growth of the virus so now they've started using it in people the evidence we have is that it translates into a reduction in how long people remain ill for it's about 30 percent reduction in the time that people shed virus and are ill it also seems to cut down the mortality rate a bit so it it does appear to attack both elements of the intensity of the disease and also the likelihood of lethality of the disease. Um, Hydrochloroquine has uh, still been muttered about, actually, even though having been championed by President Trump, it seems to have lost some of its credibility. Um, And indeed, so it should. Do you think it's shown very, very limited effectiveness? Well, this is another example of something that was used very early on in the outbreak, where people started just trying anything that they could in China initially actually where they did small groups of patients and they just tried different drugs and the problem is when you use small groups of patients there is a high risk of bias in your study in other words if I if I just give five people a drug and they all get better I might conclude that I found a wonder drug that works brilliantly actually I just picked five people by chance because there was only five of them where they were going to get better anyway and it wasn't anything to do with the drug I gave them it was just chance this is why big trials with big numbers of patients that are representative of the full spectrum of disease and the full spectrum of ethnicity etc that's why it's so important to do proper comprehensive trials so when they first did this someone concluded well there appears to be an effect of hydroxychloroquine so we should start doing that and that's why they're now doing a trial at Oxford University actually looking at that and other agents to see if there is any effect when you do it at scale. And this is being replicated in many places to see if, if there are any drugs that we can repurpose, drugs that have already got a well-understood side effect profile, they're understood how we make them, we can make them at scale, we already have them. Do they have as a side effect the ability to, to knock out this virus? Worth trying, lower likelihood of success. The World Health Organization, Chris, seems to be warning that the immune response from people who've recovered from COVID-19 indicates that antibodies may not be developed. Therefore, you know, immunity passwords, uh, passports will not work. Why, why wouldn't antibodies 
be produced. I do wish that the WHO would stop doing this because we've had a number of faux pas (laughs) like this because uh, a while back we've had similar sorts of things. Last week we had this this tweet go flying out saying people don't develop long-term immunity to this. What they meant to say was we don't know if people develop long-term immunity to this. And it then got picked up by the press and sort of mutated into this totally different story. And um, I think let, let's be clear, and they have acknowledged now, and, and in fact the Koreans have now gone on the record today and said we, we actually got it a bit wrong when we started saying people appeared to be catching this thing again and they weren't immune. Um, actually, we said here on your programme, Kim, that we were sceptical of that. It turns out we were right to be sceptical. The Koreans acknowledge you do get immunity, you probably don't catch it again. It was the test that was rubbish before. So let's just be clear here. You catch this virus, your immune system recognises it and kicks it out. We know that because people test negative, which proves that the virus has been eliminated from the body. The reason that's happened is the immune system's got rid of it. When you have an immune response, you get white blood cells that can recognise cells with virus in them, can, can destroy those cells, and you get antibodies. And both of those are underpinned by memory cells that know how to make both and know how to make both very fast and very efficiently. And those memory cells will persist for a really long time. Now, what we don't know for sure yet, despite the fact I'm saying that we do get a immune response which will protect you and we know that you can go into animals that have had an immune response very similar and re-challenge them with appreciable doses of this virus and they can't catch it so there is a protective immune response in animals that develop a disease very similar to us so we think the same is true humans but what we can't say is okay how long does that last for and the reason we can't say that is because we've only known about the virus for five months so we've only been studying people for five or six months so we're not going to know yet if you get five years 50 years the rest of your life immunity or just five months we don't know yet but it's likely we're going to get some degree of sustained immune response which makes the prospect of getting a vaccine that's going to work that bit more likely which is very reassuring we've had a few questions about the flu vaccination chris uh first of all We've been locked up. Um, we've just gone to level three, essentially. We're, you know, we're still largely locked up, staying in our bubbles as, uh, as we ought to. Uh, would one assume that the risk of a new flu arriving is very, very small? Uh, You can never say never in medicine. That's the first point. The second point is, uh, as the southern hemisphere moves into winter, it moves into flu season. And what moves flu around the world are people, because uh, the flus that generally circulate between pandemics, because pandemics are new jumps from the animal kingdom into the humans, are humans. Now, at the moment, there are not many humans moving around the world. So it's going to be very interesting this year to see what this does to the normal transmission of things that make big circuits around the globe, like the flu, because the flu arrives in a particular geography coexistent or simultaneously with the winter, usually in that geography, and it's then handed on person to person, and it then goes around the world and eventually then sets up another outbreak in the other other hemisphere coinciding with their winter time. With the lockdown at the moment and a real, real bearing down on transport, travel and people movements and people interactions, it's going to be really exciting to, to see what effect this has on the flu series in the southern hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, where you know there are lots of people who would normally catch flu, and we can see what a dent this current situation makes in that. If any, it might not. I, I think it will, though, and and we'll see 
what that does to the dynamics of flu. It may well be that as the lockdown is eased, uh, the flu, being very successful as it is, will just continue to circulate and then come in and just have a slightly delayed season. Don't know, though. It's going to be a very interesting one to watch. The question is whether, as, as you know, 60-something, late 60s in fairly good health, should have a flu jab. Um, somebody recalls you saying they think that older people may be more susceptible to COVID-19 because they have more antibodies, which in fact may be detrimental as they might assist rather than hinder the COVID-19 virus. So another load of antibodies from the flu vaccination might have a negative effect should one be exposed to COVID-19. Does that make any sense? I think that's very unlikely to be the case because you make antibodies which are really specific and selective for the thing that they're attacking. If you have a flu vaccine, you're going to make a lot of antibodies that recognise what's in that flu vaccine. And the coronavirus looks very different to the antibody uh, to what the antibodies recognizing in flu there's very little overlap there so if you make coronavirus antibodies they'll attack coronaviruses they're not going to touch flu and vice versa so i think that's very unlikely to be the case the other thing is that um, we actually treat certain inflammatory conditions including now people are beginning we talked last week about people beginning to, to manage cases of coronavirus infection in some people with convalescent serum where you take the plasma from people who have recovered from the infection and you infuse it into a person who's at severe risk of severe coronavirus infection. And the rationale is that the antibodies that help the other person to recover will be given to the third party and they will help to control the infection. But we also sometimes use antibody in this way to do what we call immune modulation. You can actually use antibodies, third-party antibodies, to help to control your immune system a bit better and stop it uh, reacting inappropriately. So uh, I would say it's very unlikely that um, there are going to be some kind of crosstalk between the flu jab and uh, coronavirus. It's always a good idea to get the flu jab because you never know what's around the corner and 70-ish percent of the time it works really well. Yeah, I think people were thinking that the immune system might generally be overactivated and thus um, stimulate COVID-19 in that way. Well, it's certainly true that in the people who get COVID-19, this is the disease caused by the SARS coronavirus 2, the new coronavirus, that there is a, a phase of that where the immune system is doing the damage. But the immune system is very fussy about what it targets and what it attacks, and it has to be. And that's why it's an immune system, because it can recognise things really discreetly. It's much better at recognising faces than, than your eyes are in terms of what virus faces and bacterial faces look like. It's incredible in terms of its specificity. And so the, the immune wind-up you get with coronavirus is quite different than the immune wind-up you're going to get with any other vaccine. And if you think about it, you are encountering every moment of your life microbes, and those are stimulating your immune system all the time. I mean, there are 37 trillion cells in an adult human and at least that many bacteria all over again. And every breath you take, you're pulling in fungi, you're pulling in viruses from the atmosphere and you're pulling in other foreign debris and even bacteria and other stuff that's in, in the air around you. And your immune system is quite happily reacting to that and controlling that. And it does that every day of your life and keeps you healthy. So if it was a question of your immune system being too stimulated, we would have died a long time ago. All right, I think you deserve to get some sleep now, Chris. <laughs> 
I've earned my bed. Thank you very much, Kim. You have. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.